Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you for listening to Weathering Coronavirus Updates and Hope. Today is Saturday. I hope that it's the beginning of a beautiful weekend for you. The quote that I started the show with today is accredited to Reinhold Niebuhr. I know that these crazy times leave a lot of us very unsettled. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Rather than dwelling on the negatives today and spending too much time scouring the internet for the latest news on coronavirus... You know, we're kind of entering the stage where we might as well buckle down for the long haul. We're going to be here for a while, folks, and maybe that's okay. So I'm trying to treat today as a vacation day. I could use a day to rest and relax and recuperate. I think that most of us could right now. You know, there are two types of people, well, more than two, but there are two types of people. Some people get really stressed out when circumstances are unfavorable. Some people try to maintain a positive attitude with very, very similar circumstances. And I think while I always want to be real, you know, I I tend to be a realist, I think the people that maintain a positive attitude and hope and look forward to better outcomes, whether or not it changes the eventual outcomes of their circumstances, what it does do is it allows them to enjoy life more in the meantime. So why not choose a positive mental attitude, be a realist, but also realize it's going to be okay. Coronavirus is going to be here for a while. We're going to sort out what to do and how to return to normalcy, and it will happen. So today, maybe just take a breather. And I would encourage you to come up with a list of things that you've been putting off perhaps for years that now you could do around the house, things that you could take care of that'll keep you active and productive and give you a purpose for each day. One of the reasons that I started this podcast is so I could provide a reasonable perspective where I could scour the internet for you, try to put together the pieces, and try to cut through the the baloney, so to speak, and get to the heart of the matter. Whenever I cover the numbers, I try to offer the numbers in a way that offers realistic perspective rather than just rattling off scare tactics. You know, we have plenty of fear. We don't need any more. Love replaces fear. And so I encourage you to love the people you love today and share a little bit of joy. Another reason that I wanted to start the show is to equip you with reasonable expectations. And that's what this show is all about. But part of what I want to do is I want to be the one that pulls the information together from the internet so you don't have to spend time in the trenches, so to speak. So here is an abbreviated look at the numbers today. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I always like to make sure that you are kept up to date. We have 629,000 coronavirus cases in the world today, and I keep saying that's a big number, but if you divide that by the world's population, it is still an extremely small percentage of the population that is sick. Most of those people will recover just fine, and they will develop immunity, which will help to overcome the outbreak of coronavirus worldwide as we all develop immunity. 
The United States is in first place for total cases, but if you look at cases per one million in population, then we are far from first place. We're way down the list because the United States is the third most populous country on the planet. So we have 112,000 cases right now, but that is still a small percentage of the population. And I wanted to break that down even a little bit more. What seems to be driving up the numbers for the United States more than anything else is New York, of course. New York and New Jersey essentially sharing the extended New York City metropolitan area. And if you take the cases that are in New York and in New Jersey, which it's bad there, folks, but if you take those cases out of the U.S. totals, it really changes things. So in the United States, based on today's numbers, one in every 3,300 people has coronavirus. However, if you take New York and New Jersey out of that mix, the number drops to about one out of every 7,000 people that has coronavirus. So we want to send a lot of love and care to New York and New Jersey. We understand they're going through a, a rather critical outbreak right now, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the United States is in the same boat. So take a breather. Remember, there's some things we can't change and we can have a positive attitude regardless. Today's deep dive is going to be on the vaccine. What are the odds? Could we get a vaccine for coronavirus in time to help with the exit plan from the extreme social distancing and lockdowns? You may have noted in episode 7 where I asked for all of us to start brainstorming on the exit plan that I only barely mentioned vaccines. And the reason is because vaccines take a very long time to develop. And while eventually a vaccine may be a major contributor to managing this crisis, in the intermediate time while we're waiting for the development of the vaccine, we're going to have to find ways to proceed without it. And when I say in the meantime... It could be a while. The good news is that there are new types of vaccines and new methodologies for developing vaccines that the planet has not had much opportunity to use in the past. These allow for the quicker development of vaccines, and so I am sure that with coronavirus, we will be seeing vaccines in record-setting times. Of course, there remain a lot of questions. Will the coronavirus again mutate and by the time the vaccine is ready, will it then be effective for immunity against the new mutations of coronavirus? We don't really know how long it will take for coronavirus to mutate to the point that a new vaccine would be required, but it is a possibility. I personally think it's just a little bit too early to start saying when the vaccine gets here, everything's going to be all right. We need a plan that we can act on until the vaccine arrives, and we know its efficacy. So I have been digging around on the internet to try to find more information about the work that's being done to help develop a COVID-19 vaccine. And here's what I found from the Telegraph. We're talking about at the UK. Disease modeling experts have warned that the shutdown imposed on the UK may have to last until a vaccine is available. This is what's kind of scary to me. I, I don't know that we can wait this long. This is because as soon as the population comes out of its enforced hibernation, the coronavirus will start to spread once more. The Telegraph notes that the bad news is that a vaccine is unlikely to be ready for worldwide use by the beginning of next year, and that's at the earliest. COVID-19 has also mutated, they report, into two strains, 
NewScientist.com confirms that there are two strains. They are calling these the L-type and the S-type. Both of these strains are involved in the global outbreak. The individual differences between the strains are slight, and it's expected at this point that if you have immunity for one, you probably are going to develop immunity for the other as well. So there's still a lot of unknowns here, but it does change the process required to create a vaccine. But the real reason that I wanted to do kind of a deep dive into vaccines is because of the timelines involved. So I want to highlight this again back from the Telegraph says a vaccine is unlikely prior to next year at the earliest. Pretty crazy. Healthline.com adds to it. It lists several companies that are working on vaccines right now. Inovio Pharmaceuticals, Moderna Incorporated. They are working on a new type of technology that is specific to DNA or RNA sequences that allow for a much faster development of a vaccine. This is good news. It says the nice thing about this technology is that it bypasses many of the traditional steps to a vaccine discovery and development. So it's very fast, said Dr. Andrus, an adjunct professor of global vaccinology and vaccine policy at the Milken Institute School of Public Health of George Washington University. However, the chief scientific officer at the drug maker Johnson & Johnson estimates they could have a vaccine ready for market within a year. The article from Healthline continues that it is really the clinical trials that are rate-limiting. The new technologies with genome sequencing and things like that greatly speed up the development of vaccines, but the clinical trials are still very necessary, and it's really hard to rush those. Once scientists have created potential candidates, the vaccines still have to go through animal testing and small and large clinical trials in people. These stages are needed to make sure that the vaccines work and are safe, and it would not make any sense for us all to be vaccinated if it didn't work, and if it was unsafe, well, we, we don't even need to go into that. Dr. Peter Hotez, professor and dean of the National School of Topical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and the co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development, said you can only speed up animal and clinical trials so much. In the end, these steps take time, he says. So that's going to be the rate-limiting step in determining whether there's going to be a vaccine available in time for this epidemic. What I am gathering is that there's a very real chance that they could finish developing the vaccine just at the time it's no longer needed. You may find it interesting from medicalnewstoday.com. There are now four different types of vaccines that companies are working on. Some of these are the more traditional and some of these are the new technology, but they're called the whole virus vaccine, recombinant protein subunit vaccine, antibody vaccine, and the nucleic acid vaccine. This may be a little bit more information than you're looking for, but it's kind of interesting to, to hear at least in brief what these are. Whole virus vaccines use weakened or dead forms of the virus that cause a disease. And what happens is when your immune system encounters these dead viruses that can't make you sick, the immune system learns the molecular structure of the virus and identifies that as an invader to the body's health. And from that time forward, then the immune system attacks anything that looks like that. And that's the reason why vaccines build immunity. They program the immune system to shut the virus down. The recumbent protein subunit vaccine 
does not rely on once live viruses to create the vaccine. Instead, it focuses in on specific proteins that the new virus use. So if we can get the immune system to recognize those specific proteins that are unique to the coronavirus, then immunity can be developed. Other researchers are investigating whether or not they can create a vaccine using the antibodies um, that actually are from the SARS outbreak that began in 2002. Keep in mind, SARS was also a coronavirus. It has many similarities to the COVID-19, and so far scientists have shown that the antibodies that neutralize the SARS-causing virus can also limit how well the new coronavirus infects cells in laboratory studies. And then the last one is the nucleic acid vaccine. Nucleic acid vaccines inject genetic material such as DNA or RNA into a live host. The cells that contain the new nucleic acid then make the proteins that were encoded in the DNA or RNA, which they present to the immune system. Although the process is complex, nucleic acid vaccines enable the immune system to fight off particular pathogens. This new DNA-RNA approach is promising. However, to date, it's only being used in veterinary medicine. So what about the timelines for these? Again, this is from uh, Medical News Today. Based on their knowledge and experience, scientists say that developing a coronavirus vaccine, first bullet point, could take at least a year. Second bullet point, may not be possible during the current outbreak. Third bullet point, could take 12 to 18 months. If the timeline for the production and distribution of a coronavirus vaccine seems long, that is because there are many steps in place to assure that it's safe and effective. Again, there we go. Safe and effective. Three phases, actually, of the clinical trials that are required to release a new vaccine. Phase one is the evaluation of the vaccine's safety and ability to generate an immune system response in a small group of people. Phase two, it tests many people, possibly hundreds, to determine the right dosage levels. And then phase three, tests thousands of people to analyze the safety and the effectiveness of the drug. How much can you push these clinical trials the schedule for the clinical trials, and still get the information that you need? Would you want them to forego the clinical trials and just shotgun this out to the population to see what happens? I don't think that's a good idea. We can end up with situations where either the vaccine did not help or actually caused more harm than good. So where does that leave us? I'm glad they're working on the vaccines. I hope that there will be something ready in time, especially to provide immunity for the more susceptible populations with underlying health conditions or the aged who just have been really impacted by this horrible virus. That said, I personally do not think that we can wait for the development of a vaccine as the exit strategy for managing coronavirus. I believe that we're going to have to come up with some intermediate plans, effective plans that will protect the population and allow widespread immunity. Would the world survive being in lockdown for a year waiting on a vaccine? I don't think I need to answer that question. 
In episode seven, I asked you all to do some brainstorming about ways that we could proceed forward. And some people feel like this is way too soon to be talking about exit strategies. I'm of the mindset that it may be a long time before we can implement a good exit strategy once we come up with one. It's time to start trying to sort out what that looks like. Right now, we're still trying to contain the outbreak of COVID-19, but we need to be running things in parallel. We can't just flatten the curve and then not know where to go from there. One of my biggest concerns is that while just a few people infected the world, now we have a world that's infected. So how long will it be before the coronavirus counts are low enough that we could venture out of our homes and out of this forced hibernation, as the UK Telegraph pointed out, without creating a second outbreak? Um, Those are questions we don't know how to answer right now. So it's time to start brainstorming. Here are some of the ideas that I shared in episode seven real quickly. This is just food for thought. I'm just proposing ideas for people to evaluate and to think about. I think the goal has to be that the population develops widespread immunity. We don't want to do that in a way that could cause elevated death rates, nor do we want to do that in a way that will overwhelm our medical resources. Just we have to avoid those two things. Is it even possible? I don't know, but here's some ideas. To keep from overwhelming the medical resources, we need to adopt a multifaceted approach where, number one, we increase the medical resources. That means we create more beds, we make sure there are nebulizers, oxygen, intubation kits, respirators, medicines, IVs, monitoring schema, and equipment in place in a greater number than we've had historically. Number two, we need to train more medical staff. Maybe we need a small army who specialize in only this one illness. Could people be trained in mass to provide essential care in these situations? We need to continue to isolate and protect the susceptible populations, the elderly and those with underlying medical conditions. They're going to have to continue to be protected, especially if we're trying to develop widespread immunity. We're going to have to ease out a shutdown mode with a healthy population of people in governed way in small stages. This would mean that healthy populations would have to get sick. But by getting sick, they should build immunity to COVID-19. Now, the illness for a healthy person is light to moderate. Um, Once this person has immunity, then he or she could be free to help restart the engines of the economy. We need to increase testing enormously. When I say enormously, I'm talking about the majority of the population being tested perhaps multiple times. Once someone has established immunity, then he or she would not need to be tested anymore. But for those people who don't have established immunity, we have to know whether or not they're a carrier, whether or not they're getting sick before they should be allowed to mix, especially with the susceptible populations. That means testing, 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 testing. We're going to have to have enough testing resources that people can be tested quickly and effectively and perhaps, like I said, over and over again. As we would ease back into normalcy, I suspect it would take a few months before we would have a majority of the population back working and schooling again. But if we could start this process as soon as we have flattened the curve, if we could slowly start this process in a, in a careful, measured way, that may be the fastest way for us to get back to some sort of normalcy again. 
We have to do it. The lockdown is important. It's it's necessary, but a long-duration lockdown could do more harm than good. Now, the plan that I just proposed has a lot of roadblocks. I'm calling for testing on levels that's never been done before, and who knows if we could even mobilize that much testing quickly enough. I'm calling for training medical people so we have a small army of people who are equipped to combat this illness and to provide the medical care necessary. Can we do that? It would also mean opening new facilities as hospitals that have never been hospitals before. Can we do that? Can the necessary medical equipment be manufactured and distributed in time? But even more critically, can we set up the type of databasing that would allow healthy populations to be exposed to the virus in careful, governed ways and in stages without creating another huge outbreak? I don't know if it can be done. That is why I call this brainstorming. I welcome criticism of these ideas. I welcome people to banter and, and debate these ideas back and forth, come up with new ideas. If we all work together, we have smart people in this world, I think we can figure out a way to manage this epidemic. You know, the $2.2 trillion package really is designed to re-stimulate the economy after just a shutdown of a few weeks. I don't think anyone has any idea how to weather a shutdown of a few months. And I don't believe that this economic stimulus package has enough teeth in it to, uh, to make that possible. I don't say these things to scare you. I say these things because I believe knowledge is power. And if right now we need that knowledge, we need the knowledge that will empower and inform us so that we can make wise decisions, so that we can save lives, and so that we can restart the world's economy and get things rolling back to normalcy again. We can take a pause as a world for a little bit. But a long-term pause could be more destructive than the virus itself. I believe that health departments around the world are doing right things. I think the first step necessarily had to be flatten the curve, social distancing, shutdowns, lockdowns, make sure that we can maintain the outbreak. And then we have to figure out how to reverse that without creating a second outbreak. And that's what I'm talking about here. People, it's time for us to be smart. And the human race is resilient and tenacious, and we are that smart. We can figure it out, so let's get to it. I'm your host, Kurt Linville, and today's show is produced by Caleb Linville. Have a great weekend, everyone.